0: welcome to finding gravitas the authentic leadership podcast designed to help you break the corporate mold and allow your leadership to thrive gravitas is an irresistible force it's the hallmark of authentic leadership join your podcast host jan griffiths as she guides you through the quest for gravitas by interviewing some of the finest leadership minds for more tools and resources to help you become a more authentic leader Engage with us at GravitasDetroit.com.
1: Today, you'll meet Stefan Kraus, the man who walks the talk when it comes to authentic leadership. Many leaders profess about titles not being important, yet their organizations still have them. Stefan broke the mold on that issue. When I first met him, his title was simply in charge. He held the CEO position at an electric vehicle company, yet his title was just that, in charge. I'll openly share with you how I completely misjudged him and why. Stefan shares candidly his leadership experience as head of sales for BMW Europe, CFO of Deutsche Bank, and his EV mission with Faraday and Canoe. You'll learn how simple changes in the way we measure people can drive significantly different results. You'll hear about leadership in good times and bad, and what it takes to be a bad weather sailor. And when you're the CFO of Deutsche Bank in 2008, I think that qualifies you to be able to speak to that. Stefan believes, as I do, that people are inherently good, and we waste far too much time managing the bad apples. We explore the topics of trust and innovation we get into a discussion about the startup culture in California and why people leave traditional automotive companies for EV companies and startups. You'll hear the answer to the ultimate automotive industry question. I asked Stefan, what advice would you give traditional OEMs? Let's jump right in. Stefan, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: I think I would like to share with our audience what I expected you to be, who I expected you to be when we first met, and how (laughs) dead wrong... I was. I had it completely wrong.
2: Okay.
1: In a moment, I'm going to ask Stefan to share his story. And uh, I will tell you that when I first met him, I knew that he had held uh, senior level roles at a major German OEM at a bank, a major German bank, and was now a CEO of an EV company in California. And because of my experience with German OEMs, which, you know, is not horrible, but certainly was not indicative of what I would call warm, authentic leadership, and I had expected somebody who was extremely hard-nosed and all about the numbers and really not about people, not about the soft stuff, not about the human skills, none of that. That's what I was expecting. And when you hear Stefan's story and you understand his background, I think maybe you'll give me a little credit and understand why I would think that. And when I met Stefan, nothing could be further from the truth, from what I had expected, he is a warm, authentic leader. Yes, a leader with gravitas. He knows how to connect people to a vision. Uh, in fact, I wanted to work for him. I was right there and ready to go, but that's another story. So enough of what I thought and how I got it wrong. Let's hear from Stefan Kraus, who he is, and let's talk about authentic leadership so, Stefan, with that opening, uh, what is your story? Who are you?
2: Yeah, yes, uh, certainly, but for the record only, I also really wanted to employ you. <laughs> and and I, was, I was really sad that you didn't join our team. Uh, we would have loved to have your skills and your experience. I'm sure that it would have made the company even more successful. Then we got it to, uh, to go. So uh, I was uh, really uh, sad. But we kept in touch because uh, obviously uh, I think there was a good connect from, from the, uh, the beginning. So thank you very much for having me today. Yeah, my story obviously, is, uh, like you said, starts also a little bit unusual because obviously I'm not a German born in Germany, I'm a German born in Colombia. My parents uh, lived 50 years in Colombia. I was uh, born there, I was raised there. So obviously my, my first years and impressions were very different than I would say a traditional uh, German person uh, would have. This was the Colombia of the of the many issues the country had. Uh, the drug lords uh, that now have become, to my surprise, very popular in many movies and uh, reminding me of my youth. Uh, also about the guerrilla situation, the obviously the poverty of the country, and and all the issues that these countries have. You know, at the time as they were developing and uh, moving ahead huge degree of political uncertainty but very nice people very open and i think that one of the skills i learned during my time in colombia was really the improvisation because it was about improvising everything every time yeah and and i think that's the skill that that stayed with me throughout my professional career and we can talk about this i then i went to the german school there it was a nice German school, and I graduated. I, I got my Colombian degree, my German degree, and that enabled me to go and study in Germany. And that was the first time where I really then lived outside of Colombia. I left with 18, started to study in this uh, little North Bavarian city of Würzburg. It's you know, very quaint and, and very nice and had a, a nice university. And I did my average degree, my average German MBA degree. Yeah. Yeah. Had the opportunity to go to Japan, uh, work, do an internship at a Japanese company, which was super interesting at the time as Japan was opening uh, more and more to the, to the West. I returned to uh, Colombia uh, to basically take over my dad's company. But the situation was, had gotten so difficult that for somebody starting a young career, the situation was harsh and difficult. And to create a young family, security concerns, etc., led me to take the view that I should go and work in Germany for one of the large companies. And especially because obviously I did want to learn, because my dad's small company uh, was done by a self-made man that you know didn't have any high school education, and he always felt that I should learn with the large companies how to properly run a business. So I. Uh, Sent my resume around, got obviously the usual nays first, and then got a couple of yes, and ended up at BMW. Had a 20-year career at BMW. I was in uh, four different areas of the company. I was in engineering, I was in the sales and marketing, I was in financial services and in finance. And uh, very quickly, in my first years, I changed between these different departments, which at BMW was very accepted that you don't do a career within one area of specialization that you move around. Uh, Was then sent to the US to build up the capital finance company, BMW Financial Services, and help the team there, Uh, which was uh, kind of my first, I would say also successful experience on how to start a business because we more or less started from ground zero, did a lot of mistakes. The only nice thing when you do it Within a corporation, is there's always enough money. And then we, uh, I was made head of sales for Europe, and uh, was responsible for about a third of BMW's group sales, Rolls Royce and Mini included. And uh, then very quickly was promoted, became CFO, a position that I held about for about uh, eight years. And towards the end, I even then switched from the CFO role back to the sales and marketing uh, position at the company. And then in the famous uh, year of uh, uh, 2008, I moved to Deutsche Bank. Actually, my start date was 1st of April, Fool's Day, and that turned out to be the longest Fool's Day of my life, I must say, (laughs) because because obviously I joined the bank. I never saw Deutsche in the good times. I only saw Deutsche in the bad times of the crisis and regulatory headwinds and all the, the problem. Your reputation as a banker wasn't very good. Uh, Compensation uh, wasn't as good as initially thought. I thought I had landed a big ticket because of the bankers making much more money than industrial people. Uh, Stayed there, did a couple of large acquisitions, uh, had a super interesting time. And I must say, uh, when you're obviously at the top management ranks of BMW, uh, you know, you're kind of a good weather sailor, right? And what uh, Deutsche Bank taught me to become really a bad weather sailor as well, right? And that's, that's an invaluable experience. And you see really talking to the topic about leadership, you know, leadership is mo- much more important, obviously, in difficult times than it's in good times. But leadership is easier in the, in the difficult times because people accept it easier than necessarily in the good, the good times, yeah, where well, people don't necessarily see the, the value of it. And certainly that was also a takeaway. That, that I had and in both, there's a lack of leadership in good and bad times. And, and that sometimes obviously then exacerbates to make situations more difficult. Either a company that's sailing in good weather doesn't see that it needs to change and a company that's in bad weather sometimes loses it because decisions aren't made to really get the company out of the heavy weather. Right. I then, uh, after eight years as CFO and later also doing some businesses at Deutsche, uh, uh, went to the UK and uh, was senior advisor to Babcock Pinkus. Was involved in private equity transactions. Uh, Babcock Pinkus had obviously raised money in the US and uh, was interested in acquiring European businesses and helped there for a while. Before then, getting an offer to come to California to work for Faraday Future, which was a Chinese funded. Uh, EV company trying obviously to compete with Tesla at that point. This was the start of the EV industry and Tesla had kind of a little bit paved the way. There's still a lot of questions whether electric cars would happen, but this were the early days as uh, as, as this started. Uh, Regretfully, obviously, uh, the company had some uh, funding issues that I won't expand on at the moment and uh, therefore uh, a team of uh faraday employees uh, decided to form uh, a new company i took the leadership position with that team uh, i got the funding in place and we started canoe in december of 2017. the company was just listed in december of 2020 just three years after funding for about 2.4 billion on the uh, uh, nasdaq so which was Obviously super rewarding in a sense to see that the ideas that, that you had had and the ideas that the team had had really resulted in, in this type of a great story. Nevertheless, uh, part of uh, being a leader, you sometimes have to take firm positions and you have convictions. These convictions weren't shared by some of the shareholders that I had at the time. So I ended up leaving, uh, helped uh, Fisca then in their process of becoming a public company as well but immediately started to work on my own new business, um, which, which I'm hopefully close off for announcing soon. And uh, and have been working on for a couple of months on this since the beginning of the, of the year. Uh, in the meantime, joined as SPAC as a uh, CIO, Chief Investment Officer and Chief Financial Officer we are trying to help Europe to not lose ground in the EV mobility space. In the automotive, as we believe that too many of the existing players have slept for long and keep denying that electric cars will be a real reali- reality, we hear announcements. I hear a lot of announcements now, but but it's unimaginable I mean, a year ago you didn't even hear these announcements. And now uh, uh, some of these announcements lack conviction, yeah, and uh, and therefore we believe that we should support a European company to become a major player in global EV markets. Because I think American companies and Chinese companies are dominating the future mobility markets. And it's a little bit sad to me to see that Germany who dominated the old combustion engine driven marketplace for so long is kind of losing ground because the inability of these companies to go for radical change and to to move along, which is very much obviously a leadership, uh, vision and leadership topic that you are involved in. So yeah, that's that's a little bit my 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 upbringing. I was lucky to be able to give in positions with big responsibility early on. I was obviously in over my head. I was obviously clueless on how to do it. So I couldn't rely I wasn't always the smartest person in the in the room that I couldn't rely on on that what many managers rely on that they think that they're the smartest person in the room. So obviously, I had to do, uh, learn and lead differently, and I think that's probably a little bit of what you saw and experienced.
1: Yes, yes, thank you. Well, thank you for sharing that. And you mentioned radical change. You are no stranger to radical change. Uh, I would like to talk more about uh, EV and the future leadership model before we we go into the area of future leadership in automotive. I have to ask you this question because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, are thinking about this. Given the traditional stereotype of the German OEM leadership, um, aggressive, harsh, not focused around people, uh, not mission-driven, very much task-driven, how on earth did you not only survive but thrive in that kind of culture when you are truly an authentic leader, could you help us understand that?
2: Well, I, I think that the, the, the interesting part is, uh, I think, in your observation, is correct. Yeah, uh, it has a lot to do also with the German culture. You know, it's very formalistic. You know, uh, rules, you know, Germany and in, 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 in the country's rules are important, right? And you, you know, like you always make fun of you, you have to follow the rules. Yeah, the rules are important. And we only work because the people follow the rules, yeah. and this this obviously is is a little bit the management mantra that it, that it exists, yeah. And um, people very often, as you know, the biggest issues, uh, people are worried about their careers or worried about their thing, and therefore obviously they tend on the one hand to follow the rules. and then of course, if they follow the rules, they expect everybody else to follow the rules as well. and that creates the system that at the end of the day, in these companies, you know, everything is about, you know, following the, the rules that happen. And very many of these companies obviously have been existing for a very long time, right? And therefore the, the myriad of bureaucratic rules and of of committees and of meetings and of processes and all of this exists. And and to some extent, it's also easy to hide behind this because it, it's, it's a model that, is not built on a model of personal accountability and responsibility right and at the end of the day the best way to survive in that environment is just following the rules and and complying with the rules and then you'll never be in trouble right but it's not a system that generates innovation it's not a system that's prone to make changes especially not radical changes it's a system that preserves and and that's the the different stakeholders these rules have been developed obviously by a group of stakeholders that is trying to keep their jobs, keep their roles, keep their power, keep their say in the game, right? And, and therefore, there's no incentive to change it. And honestly, I, maybe I, I didn't do this by planning, but I was so naive, maybe, and so young <laughs> that I always felt that uh, and I had learned that just to, to speak uh, speak out and say what's, uh, what the facts are and I must say the 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 most experience that I had it was accepted and it kept many by them of uh, by surprise. Of course, I, I I build up a reputation of not necessarily always doing what was expected and not doing, but sometimes this surprised element also was very helpful, right? So to give you to give you only to make it a little bit more for for your audience to make it explain it a little bit. So when I was um, you have to imagine this is now uh, BMW's at its core. I was uh, a young kid. I was made head, head of sales for Europe, right? And this meant that 19 countries yeah, reported into me in which BMW was selling. And obviously, like you know, from these companies in each one of these countries, there was a senior leader, very accomplished, had done a lot for the company. Um, very good people, by the way, you know, obviously BMW, had smart and uh, good people, but they were living in this system in which the corporation was exploiting the competition amongst them, right? And of course, you know, each one of them wanted to be successful, and just to show it, because I'm a believer that charts in companies very often tell the mindset of the company, the main chart that was shown about sales started with one country on the top and all the other countries following, right? And that way, you created a you created a culture of one winner that tended to be arrogant, that was not willing to share how they were successful, right? And and in my case, eighteen losers, right? Uh, because they were not on the top of that chart, right? And it was intra it was it was competition within. So, how many cars did we sell in Great Britain, and where how many did we sell in France, and how many did we sell in Spain, and things like that. And this was the the environment that people people were in, and of course this environment doesn't help them to share ideas on how to jointly become better and and uh, for me, it was therefore easy. I understood that very quickly. I said, I need to get the people to work together, and we just changed one chart we just changed the chart how they were doing against our Mercedes and Audi competition, and we ranked them differently, yeah. We now didn't rank them by amount of cars they were selling, but how well they were performing against the local. And all of a sudden they started to share ideas because now it was all about yeah, cooperating and become overall uh, better. We also changed, there was a big centralization process going on. You know, these companies always tilt from centralization to decentralization, which is, is a funny game, right? It goes on, the new manager comes and believes in centralization and all, Everything gets changed to this. Then the next manager comes and believes in decentralization or it all gets decentralized. So we were in a centralization process at that time. By the way, for the customers, this doesn't mean anything, right? This doesn't help the customers. This doesn't help anybody, but this is what these large corporates are always busy in their power games uh, on. And we were in this uh, centralization process and I was able to convince them that they were losing this centralization game and most of the sales and marketing activities were being centralized at the headquarters department, ignoring different cultures and different ways of communicate, and understand amongst people uh, just to save some cost, yeah, in terms of uh, marketing. And by uh, working together, we just changed the dynamics. You know, I created the European Marketing and Sales Council and instead of, them having to fly to munich to talk to the central people we made the central people come to us and tell us what their ideas were for change and obviously that little slight change created created a very different dynamic and avoided you know uh, uh avoided centralization in topics that you should definitely should not centralize because you want to be close to your customers and the dealers and things like that so very often it was these simple and in, in changes that that made a Uh, a difference, yeah. And I always, and and that's what what you said, I always try to really understand the. I personally think that human beings are are good, and I personally think I I don't have a bad opinion of human beings. And I think that at the end, human beings want to do the right thing and want to be successful. And you really have to switch the criteria in the system, right? So if you want managers to be people managers, just measure them on how well they are as people managers. If you want them to be empathetic, Manage them, learn, teach them to be empathetic and, and honor if they're, and, and recognize if they are, right? And, and that's what I've always believed. And it was also interesting to see that the same people in different systems would work completely different, right? And I think that's what I've always encouraged. i encouraged people to take a risk. It's part of being, being a human, you take risks. And um, allowing yourself to do some mistakes, because we all do, and we always will. But learn out of these mistakes and don't repeat them two or three times, right? So kind of these were kind of some of the things that helped me early in my career. And then, of course, you also have to have luck, luck sometimes. You have to be the right person at the right time. That's obviously out of question. Anymore.
1: You talk about making mistakes, and we all know that Uh, failure is required, is a required part of innovation. If you don't create an environment where people feel comfortable taking a risk and making a mistake and supporting them and helping them through that, then we're never going to get the innovation and certainly not the speed of innovation that we're all looking for. Let's let's broaden uh, the discussion now to let's, let's move away from German OEMs and talk about the automotive industry as a whole. The culture in the automotive industry uh, has often been, you can't make a mistake, right? If you make a mistake, you're going to get your head taken off. You'll be yelled at by somebody. Or, and if you make it again, you could be fired, right? Huge generalization, I know, but that certainly still exists in the culture. Again, companies are trying to change, uh, but the I think companies struggle with some very fundamental issues and you said it and it's very simple you believe that human beings are inherently good and want to do the right thing. And it's how you see your role as a leader of people as to whether or not you can make that happen. And I think that the industry today has has trouble with some of those very basic fundamentals.
2: Yes, I agree. Don't forget, most of the most of the, uh, and we do this all the time as human beings, that we, what I call, we manage by the bad apples, by the 10%, 5% bad apples that you have, right? And you, and you punish 95% of the good apples because you, you bring the same level of distrust, yeah, to all of them. And that's what these systems end up doing, yeah? They are fundamentally based on distrust and fundamentally based on a bad view of human beings, right? And, and but but it is and you will always. I no, no organization, no group in the world. Yes, you will have some bad apples, and that may have nothing to do with how they're the company. And these are human beings that may have gone through difficult life experiences. That that you know may may be ideologically or etc. Poisoned. That that may just have you know had a difficult family upbringing and things like that. Yeah, uh, and. But we tend to spend more time on how can we protect these companies from these bad apples doing something to the company than spend time on how can we get the 95% of good people that we have really to be innovative and active and, and, and working, right? And that has something to do with this mistake. Nothing can happen. I said certainly there are certain businesses like when you're in airlines, you need to have a zero mistake policy. No question, you're playing with human beings' lives, right? I think also in the automotive, you, know, you when you build a car, you're also playing with human beings' life, and you have to have a zero mistake mentality as much as you can. But not when you work with people, not when you when you organize. Not there you need mistakes. There you need the, the the willingness of people to take certain risks, because otherwise there's no progress, right? And there's no innovation. So I remember trying to solve this problem and, and uh, I remember many years ago with Chris Bangley who was uh, a great designer at BMW and, and uh, at that time was not as much recognized. And, but today I see that the industry followed his, his good designs and I, I always liked what he did and he was innovative. We we were frustrated that in the company really in uh, BMW people wouldn't dare to say what they really believe and and, and we had done you know we had done some mistakes in, in product development and design and we were figuring out we have the best hundred thousand people in the world and we still bring out a bad car how can that how can that be yeah we have the best designers the best engineers the best software people and still we we did this mistake and then it was really because people just didn't dare to say something, right? didn't dare to speak up, didn't dare to, to say out of these fears that exist in this organization. At that time, Second Life was like the game everybody was playing. So we created a Second Life in BMW that, that Chris Bengley actually called Red Square. And Red Square had the idea, because we co- couldn't deal with the system as it was, why do we create a parallel life in which every employee can be what they want to be in the organization? right, and can continue their opinion, and we we created, we want to create this game, like you're an engineer, but you believe that the marketing people weren't doing a good job, so you could slip into a marketing role, and in the game, propose, you know, what you would do in marketing, and vice versa, and, and you know, people could, could, and then there would be no bosses and things, and, you know, there would be a compensation system for good ideas and things like that. But I can tell you, when we started with this idea, this system fought back very hard. We were, we 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 tried to implement it. We couldn't implement it because the people had to even fear to what would come out of it, right? But in our initial stages of implementing this, was amazing. You know, the, the, there's so many hidden skills and talents and ideas from people that don't come out in this organization because exactly of these either rules, or fears, or concerns, or. Or, or the way that, 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 and that's I I always thought is is too bad that the end of the day, and I think I think that uh, obviously as we are evolving, our organizations are really built for people that are supposed to execute, like in the military, right? Some, but one one person thinks, and the rest of them execute, and that's the wedding cake organization we have in most of the companies today. But when today you have educated people, yeah, that that can bring and add a lot of value, it's just the wrong way of organizing and running around. And that's kind of, kind of. I totally agree with you. Um, allowing people to do mistakes is uh, one important, especially trusting people, I think uh, empowering and trusting people is super important.
1: Let's, let's talk about the future and let's talk about the EV culture, leadership culture uh, in California, specifically, very, very different. So you were able to take all of your leadership philosophies, ideas, practices, everything that you'd learned, everything you knew that you wanted to do, and you were able to implement them in the EV space. Uh, tell us a little bit about that transition.
2: Yeah, the, 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 it, it was interesting to see that, especially, you know, when when we have an ability as human, and I, I don't think that's something special but when we work in small teams and that's what your most startups start right because everyone has to take risk and everybody has to you know say their opinion and everybody and, and the team is small and relationships are clear there's a basic trust amongst the people in that small environment we perfectly can work and be innovative and create great ideas and everybody dares to speak up right and as we grow bigger right from from the the family, to the village, to the town, to the city, to the country, right? Uh, We we lose that, right? We lose all of a sudden this this ability. And what intrigued me is how can we keep this spirit, yeah, That, that the startup team always will have, right? And the basis, obviously, there's a common understanding of what you want to achieve. The second thing is there's a common level of trust, right? So, because you cannot do all the jobs, you cannot micromanage, you cannot direct you cannot do because you need to rely on everybody in the team to do their their part, right? That you can transfer this to a larger organization. And that was basically the the guiding principle when we started to create the the organization around Canoe and starting to thinking about how we how we get organized and how we develop this. So the first thing is all the the famous, you know, organizations Create all this what I call distractions. These are titles and office spaces, and how many people report to you, and how big your budget is, and all of this. And these are enormous distractions, right? This is this is again trying to control and, and monitor people, right? And the first thing that that I did is I, I we played around as you know with this word to be in charge of something because what it really matters is what are you accountable and responsible for, right? So we didn't have any titles. We tried to avoid any, any organizational charts. Still the people were so accustomed to organizational charts that some of them couldn't envision to work without them, right? So I tried to at least change the picture again and drew circles instead of wedding cakes, right? So at the beginning, you know, our organization had circles and we had no titles and and, and the basic assumption was, and your title was just saying what you were in charge of. Yeah, so you were either in charge of the front desk or you were in charge of the powertrain, right? There was the same title for everybody. And it was also descriptive enough that everybody knew what, what you were supposed to work on, right? And what you were what you were uh, involved in. And therefore, uh, the, this was some of the principles where we tried to keep up this, this what we all can do in small organizations to keep it up in the larger organization. But it became increasingly difficult because people were joining the organization that, that are so educated and so trained in the wedding cake command and control environment that they really struggled in struggled with uh, with dealing, you know, with this.
1: Is it true that in California, in the uh, electronics tech kind of environment, that they are more, they're used to that type of culture rather than command and control? So it's almost easier for uh, an EV company with an electronics background to to launch and to, to grow than it is from a traditional automotive company to adopt this kind of culture and leadership.
2: I, I would have probably, two years or three years ago, I would have completely concurred with you, but I've now dealt with uh, also startup environments here in Europe and startup environments even in China, yeah? And I must say, it's probably more inherent of a group of people initially voluntarily coming together to get a mission accomplished, right? And, and certainly, I think what California has done right um, which is very impressive. Uh, I must say, what California has really done right is to create a framework that supports this, while most of these older countries and systems still have frameworks that make it more difficult. Right? So, being uh, the, the, if if I listen to teams here, for example, in Germany, or I listen to teams in China, they have they have the same. Impetus, they have the same drive, they have the same, they honestly look very much the same. The, the way they operate, the way they, they have, a, there's a few people that have what, 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 you know, and this is the words that I've always used that carry conviction into them. Don't forget, in large organizations, it's compliance what works. And you're forced and incentivize for compliance, right? You're not, a large organization doesn't support your conviction. While it's in the small organization, you live by conviction right? the people come there, they work there, they probably don't have to work there. They probably have other choices, but they come because they have conviction, right? And that you find there too. But then what California has done right is, for example, the, the legal system that there is, there's no anti-competition uh, laws, right? That you cannot, that everybody can live. And I thought this is, for example, a super smart thing because as an employer, of course, you want to avoid your employees going somewhere else doing exactly what you're doing. Yeah, that's very protective of, of a company. And people would believe that that's, that's, you know, we have invested in this product and things like that. And the ability that my employees can go and on the other side of the fence and build a new company with the same product, yeah, in the old thinking is really bad. But when you think through, and I had an interesting discussions, yeah, I said, I think it's great that it's possible. And you know why? Because if you as entrepreneur want to keep your people, just motivate them. Just give them the tools. They don't They don't go over the other side of the fence on a Thursday afternoon because they have nothing better to do. There's a reason they move over and start over again. It's because you do. And this is what I lift and I see every day still also by the way happening in California. They treat their people poorly. They are not open. They, they have command and control structures. They have, you know, unacceptable leaders. They have yeah rules that frustrate the people. And of course, if you have the choice, you will go to the place. better. So I think this is a smart thing for California to do because it, it necessitates from you to create the right environment and happy people and happy managers and happy, they will never leave you if you create the right environment. Yeah, but you should, you should as the entrepreneur bear the risk that if you don't do the right things and keep your people, keep them motivated, that they can walk. Why restrict them then from from working if it's you that's causing the issue? It's not certainly not them, right? For example, that was smart. I think that's a very smart smart rule to to implement, and I wish that more places in the world would implement it because that would force companies to just take care more of their employees and to value their employees differently and 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 kind of ensure that they are that they they can do what they want. Many people today leave the tra- the traditional OMs why and go to these startups because the OMs don't allow them to innovate. To your question on innovation, so you know, uh, some of the people we we had from BMW in the company they went to the startups because they couldn't do what they wanted in in the large OM. Yeah, you know? and I think this 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 is is a very good dynamic in California that exists. And second, obviously, the whole culture of fundraising and providing funds to young teams and this culture that has been created over many years is is always important so i think that there's some basic fundamental rules that created this uh, or made california to take the lead in global company development and they're very very easy yeah and then you know other countries complain that they cannot compete just need to change their their are edited towards innovation and they're edited towards uh, and, and kind of starting to set some rules on how to better you know, make people function. California, I'm a little bit concerned taxing, they're taxing the hell out of people now and they will lose because obviously young companies and young talent will, f- will try to find other ways to go, right? And, uh, and I think that that's the second thing that they have to be careful because there's other ecosystems that are coming up now that are just playing the same California game just providing people with a good environment to to build businesses and develop technology
1: I like what you said compliance versus uh, conviction because again that's a very basic fundamental shift in your thinking as yeah. a leader as a manager of people are you looking for compliance or are you looking for conviction and if you can honestly answer that question and come out on the conviction side, you've got a you've got a head start.
2: Yes, I think so.
1: But if you are all about compliance, then that's that's a huge, huge problem.
2: Yeah. Well, it shows you you're you're generally when you seek compliance, you're a weak manager. Because you don't have the better conviction means you have to have the better arguments. Right? Or you have to then also be willing to accept somebody else's argument. Because at the end of the day, the biggest, and that's what I've always tried in my uh, uh, career as a leader, is I want people to work for me that are convinced that what we're doing is right. And then I don't have to worry about them making decisions because as long as they have the conviction and they're convicted of going the right direction, and and how do you get people to, to believe? It's you, you discuss, you argue, you you use their experience, you share your experience with them, and you jointly create a way forward right? Then you always will get conviction. You know, we have teams, and once you have a team that's, that, that shares the same conviction you have, you don't have to worry. They're not going to do something against this, right? They're going to do the right decisions. You can empower them to make decisions. You can let them go. If you enforce compliance and said, because I'm senior vice president and you're only vice president, you have to do what I have, what I tell you to do, then I think you've lost. You, 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 of course, people will comply because they are forced to yeah they, they have a family they have a mortgage right but what kind of company are you then you know what kind of a team are you generating and that's for me this compliance versus conviction I always look at uh, like if managers come to me and already worried about their titles and worried about their office space and and, and worried about all these signs yeah that want to enforce compliance on other people then of course they get super skeptical I think they're not the right managers I would like at least to hire
1: what advice would you give to traditional OEMs, uh, American OEMs specifically? What advice would you give them as they they are working hard to embrace EV, to embrace to change the culture? Uh, they're doing everything they can. I believe they are. They're trying. My concern is it's not fast enough. Uh, Let me ask you two questions. What do you think is the biggest challenge that they face and what advice would you give them to help them?
2: Well, whenever you have a transition to manage, right, It's uh, and, and we certainly lived this in the difficult times at Deutsche Bank, you have a legacy business. And to recognize that it is a legacy business and not hold on to it too long and to start preparing yourself on how you're going to down manage your legacy business in a smart and uh, and considered manner. Also, including obviously the legacy people you will have for, for whom you are responsible and for whom you should take responsibility and whom you should help to transition. I think the best advice I give is recognize quickly you have a legacy business and the job in the legacy business is different than when you have a future business and develop. So. For too long, these companies are defending their legacy business as something that they try to keep until it gets too late, until only catastrophe, right? Until only the the big bump will solve the problem to get rid of the legacy business, yeah? Because you, you're not in control then anymore of your legacy business. And then once you're not in control, and that's what I also learned at Deutsche Bank, when you had assets that you had time to manage down, then you had options. But if overnight your derivatives book became a problem, right? then your company was gone. And this doesn't take long. We saw it at Lehman. It doesn't take long yeah. when you don't recognize that you, it goes very fast. So my advice or the biggest problem is they should recognize that a large part of their business today is a legacy business. They should stop defending the legacy business and they should start, Thinking about how to properly, yeah, and carefully manage down the legacy business to allow the new business to grow, right? And, and this is, this is, and and this is also by by building conviction in your staff, right? This is, of course, your, your, your staff will also go into a, a mindset of defending the legacy business because that's, that's where they have their jobs today. That's where they have their future today. And of course, we have a tendency to keep legacy businesses alive longer than the outside world really tells us that they will be alive, right? And that's that's kind of my, my advice. I would say it in a very different, funny way. Uh, what my recommendation to OMS is, you have to fire your current customers. Just fire your current customers because they're buying the wrong things, right? Somebody yes. today buys a combustion engine, that's not a customer you want to have, because that customer is the wrong customer for you, and if you just change this mindset and said, "Okay, let's fire all these customers that are buying the wrong things, and let's try to acquire the customers that are buying the right things, yeah, if that's the attitude you take, yeah, then that really changes your your view on what you need to what you need what the task ahead is is. Don't say, my customers today are still buying 8 and 10-cylinder engines. Say, I have to fire, I have to get rid of these customers, and I have to find customers now. I have to start competing to find customers that, that buy, for example, zero-emission vehicles. Right? These are my customers of the future, and those ones I have to find. And the rest, I fire. Wow, that's uh,
1: that's great advice, but hard, I think, for a lot of people to actually take on board. But I agree with you. I think you're absolutely dead right. And it goes back to your comment earlier about preservation. Yeah. You mentioned this, this term preservation and uh, we want to, as human beings, we want to feel safe. And if you've grown up in a leadership model and in an industry that acts and behaves a certain way and it has assured you your success and you feel safe, you're going to do everything you can to perpetuate that and make sure that that doesn't change. And that I see uh, as a problem as we contemplate this back to the office yes. and what the hybrid workforce could look like there's still a lot of people out there that can't wait to get everybody back in the office because they want to keep their eyes on them and get back into that compliance mode rather than conviction mode. And this is such a great opportunity to embrace the conviction side and move away from the compliance side. And quite frankly, that's that gives me a great opportunity to pursue my mission, which is to allow authentic leadership to thrive. Um, as you know, I have used the word gravitas in my business, and I believe that gravitas is the hallmark of authentic leadership. It's more a feeling. Like you say, it's a conviction that you get. A leader is a, a leader that's able to bring people in to them so that they feel safe and they can contribute and they can truly realize their full potential. That's a leader with gravitas. If I were to ask you, what is gravitas to you in terms of leadership? What would you say it was?
2: Yeah, yeah. first of all, I, I, I do think that uh, uh, at the end of the day, whether you have gravitas or not is going to be decided by other people. Right. It's not something you, you can you cannot walk in a room and say, I have gravitas. Right. Because
1: <laughs> right. It, I've seen it, people it, sort of do <laughs> that. <laughs> I've, <to> do that. <laughs> I've seen a few of those.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it, they won't last long. And that will probably be, be answered with a lot of cynicism uh, if, if somebody were to say that. And I would say it just it has it has something to do on how people react to, to, to you and to what you're trying to do. And for that I think it's so so easy is just put yourself in, in their shoes, right? It's just think about what would be important to you to follow a person. And and that's why I always like to use this word conviction versus compliance, because in my mind, in the essence, first of all, you have to convince yourself if you're insecure, right? If you if you don't know. And I always use this example, yeah, imagine you have a pilot and there's a little bit of a turbulence and he comes over the speakerphone and, and does something doesn't come over as confident, yeah, and as calm. And I think and then of course what's gonna happen to the rest of the passengers? It's, it's gonna be a disaster for them, right? Because then they're gonna gonna feel that you're really in a serious situation and that, that and that's what you say, creating a secure environment is something to, to do that you need to have confidence, you need to know and therefore you, you at the end you need to have your own conviction of where you're taking, where you're leading people, people towards. And then the second thing is what people expect. I think people sometimes, most of the managers always feel that people uh, don't like bad news and do all kinds of stuff to avoid having to give people bad news. Right. And, and for me, somebody that has gravitas has understood one thing I don't think people cannot deal with bad news because it's our life reality. Our life will always have ups and always have downs, and we'll have to. So I love, you know, I've been fired. I've been told bad news too. I've been, I've not only had a successful career, I've also had, uh, you know, my downs in my career and it's comes in every career. The The only thing, and then putting yourself in the shoes, the only thing that people want when you tell them bad news is to be treated fairly and not dismissive and not, dis, you know. And I think gravitas for me is also the second way on how you you deal with people, right? Is is how empathetic you are to people, you know, how, how, how you understand that, yeah, sometimes I've had to fire people. And I've always managed at the end of the day that they left my office, sometimes even with some level of gratitude, yeah, only because you dealt with, yeah, you had to pass bad news, but you dealt with them in a human fair basis and you focus them on the future and you focus them on, on what's said to come. So I think this, these are the main aspects that I can, off the top of my head, tell me. I'm sure if you give me a weekend to think about, I'll give you even a smarter explanation for what it is. But this would be my, my first take at it.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a perfect um, interpretation of Gravitas. We have uh, several young people listening to the podcast, uh, Gen Z. What advice would you give to your 25-year-old self in today's environment? If you were looking at 25-year-old Stefan right now, what would you tell him?
2: So the the first interesting thing that I honestly completely ignored at the beginning of my career because I was so focused, like I said, on tasks and jobs and roles and, and things to do is network. Right? I think I think the most valuable part now, in hindsight. That I must recognize is is your network, the the people you know, the people you trust, the people that can give you advice, the people, yeah. So um, I was felt in my early years that I had to work, 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 and work hard, and I didn't spend enough time developing my network and developing, you know, relationships. Because to be honest, everything you do in in life is about relationships, and very often later in your career, relationships out of the past will play a Different and important role all of a sudden, right? So the first advice is don't don't ignore it because that's not what we get taught in business school normally, right? We don't we get taught valuation models and business cases and and all kinds of marketing and sales and all kinds of uh, technology and things like that. But we we don't really get taught on how to be smart about developing you know your networks. And the second this the second thing is I would uh, definitely also say is is uh, Understand that uh, in t- today's changing world, right, to embrace change as a positive thing is, is a super thing. It's not a threat. Uh, it's, yes, For a while, it, it does feel uncomfortable that it has something to do with us as human being, uh, beings. But at the end of the day, my experience is always that there's always a reason for this change to come. And at the end of the day, longer term, you recognize it. it had a reason and it was for the better, right? So don't fight change, just embrace change. I think that's also what I would tell. Tell. You. But young people tend to generally accept it more because they, they obviously need need to change. And then last, uh, I, I think I talked to you about don't ever lose your curiosity. Yeah, I think curiosity is regretfully something people lose over, over the years, right? And I can always say don't lose your curiosity because it's, uh, I think the world has so much to offer, right? And there's so many different things to, to your life that you can explore. And then, last but not least, I think I see too many, too many people. And I understand when you're a young person, you try to optimize your life, you try to get to a certain standard of living, you, you try maybe to have a family, and you try to, to want to have, was a millennial, style, maybe a little bit different now, but uh, that's what it. And at the end of the day, I, I think what I also recognize too late in my life at the end, it's not only about your life and optimizing your life. It's, it's, you know, how can you really help the world? Yeah. And this famous, maybe cliche sentence, but it has a lot of truth to, to become a better place, right? How can you, you know, really help humankind and think to, to, to move along? And if you were able to, to give it a little bit of a push, then I think you had a very fulfilling life. It's not the money on your bank account that counts. It's it's what you were able to to move and push forward uh, in terms of making the world a better place.
1: Yes, yes, I agree. And as a leader, it's how you make people feel. Right? It's how you make people feel. Oh, that's a beautiful way to end. Stefan, thank okay. you so much you. for your time today. It's been okay. a pleasure.
2: It's been a pleasure too. And uh, all good luck to you. And I'm sure we'll We'll be in touch very soon.
1: Yeah, we will.
0: We love feedback. Email Jan directly at jan at and tell us about your journey into authentic leadership. Let us know what you liked about this episode and what you'd like to hear in future episodes. For more tools and resources to help you become a better, more authentic leader with Gravitas, engage with us at gravitasdetroit.com.